Thank you all for joining us today. Um, this is the site visit live experience. So welcome. If you're in the wrong room, you can you can leave now. <laughs> um, I'm Ashley Bigham. Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. We're both assistant professors at uh, the Knowlton School of Architecture at Ohio State University, and we're the co-directors of Outpost Office, an architectural practice seeking new public audiences. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. If you like Site Visit, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and be sure to tell your friends. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today's episode was recorded live in front of an audience at the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture's Fall 2019 conference, hosted by Stanford Architecture and the Yale School of Architecture. The ACSA is a nonprofit organization composed of more than 200 different member schools and whose mission is to lead discussions and programming that center on architectural education and research. This year's conference, which took place on the Stanford University campus in Palo Alto, California, was titled Less Talk, More Action, and focused on how architectural education can adapt to a newer generation of students and a more interdisciplinary professional practice. Joining us for today's episode is one of the co-chairs of this year's conference, Sunil Bald, a Lewis Kahn visiting assistant professor at the Yale School of Architecture and partner at the award-winning New York-based practice Studio Sumo. Among Sunil's many interests, his work on academic campuses, both locally and in Japan, has led him to rethink the role campus architecture plays both urbanistically and as an icon for an institution. For today's site visit, Sunil took us to the McMurdy Building on Stanford's campus. Designed by Diller Scafidio and Renfro, the building's generous open spaces, circulation scheme, and specific use of materiality attempts to unite the various disciplines that share the building's state-of-the-art facilities. We began our conversation by asking Sunil to describe the building and why he chose it for today's site visit. Basically, it be it was. I mean, that was the building of choice for uh, because it was the building that when I came to uh, to Stanford to start planning the conference, that was the one building I was taken to <laughs> to look at, which was sort of interesting because it's also you know for a building like Stanford, uh, or I mean for a campus like Stanford where everything has been so kind of controlled. I think it as um, as an institution, Stanford kind of almost chose this as a sort of first kind of like contemporary iconic building, or at least that I can think of, um, and uh, sort of entered into that tradition of American universities, you know, sort of getting like a brand building. Although I worked on a building, I have to say, I worked on a building here, 20, that is built just around the corner uh, for Antoine Pradock, like 25 years ago. And, uh, but yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't notice it. <laughs> So when we were walking around, you mentioned that other building. And mm-hmm. so you knew actually a few details about that also applied to the McMurdy building, maybe about campus requirements. So right. that's something that architects deal with quite a bit, which is campuses can um, they may have even a kind of guidebook on materials that architects are allowed to use. Um, tell us a little bit about what you knew about Stanford's architectural code before. Yeah, well, at that time, <clears throat> I think it's obviously I think it's loosened up or uh, or it may be uh, as a result of how far 
you are from the core of the campus. But I think it has kind of loosened up where when we did that the project, and it was a competition project in 1994 for an engineering building, uh, all buildings had to have a mansard roof. All buildings had to sort of approximate a certain color. And also all buildings had to have like a kind of vaulted portico. And so I think that that has gradually become somewhat unraveled because, you know, all these buildings are maybe one step away from that. Um, and the mansard roof that we did was like sort of framed as an airplane wing. And and now these buildings kind of have a similar sort of roof. And then the roof got taken, I mean, doesn't really exist in the um, McMurdy building. Mm -hmm. And also the color thing is there. But the interesting thing I think about the color there is they just throw in a bunch of other colors too. So you don't really, you don't really identify it as the yellow building, just like yellow is one of the colors. So another one of the colors are the materials I'm thinking, because it has a lot of materials on it. And that's one of the striking things that I think you notice when you walk up to mm -hmm. it. Um, one is a very vibrant, bright orange color, mm -hmm. um, which you see as you walk. And so the, um, the building is, uh, has an inner courtyard um, and you can enter that courtyard from all different sides of the building and you sort of walk under these bridges that come across. Right. Um, but that orange color is one of the materials that leads you into that space, which I thought was quite striking. I kind of thought it was like an oblique reference maybe to the terracotta, like in a strange way, like picking the, up on the orange. Like mm -hmm. it, was, it, was very, it, it seemed like a kind of way that they were playing with it. So if we could talk about the building broadly, it's two wings mm -hmm. uh, that are kind of uh, around a central courtyard and it stitches together a number of programmatic mm -hmm. uh, elements. It includes elements of art and also art history. A library is found at the center and it also stitches together a lot of kind of existing circulation paths. So mm -hmm. maybe we could talk about some of the more memorable moments because we had an opportunity to walk all through the building. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for me, I think the it's it is a very interesting building. Just sort of thinking about this kind of interest or play in like Diller's. Well, this is very much like a Charles Renfro project of Diller's Video. Um, Renfro, but this play of circle circulation, giving formal possibilities, especially mm -hmm. formal sectional possibilities, is something that you know Diller Scafidio in particular has mined in its work, and then how that kind of collides both with a almost like Boxian type way of thinking about program. And then this desire to make some kind of uh, exterior space that is claimed by the volume of the building. And so in some ways, it is maybe more of an internalization of the kind of Richardsonian vaults that create an outdoor space for the exterior. But then it kind of gobbled up into this sort of Oculus interior that we all experienced yesterday and was sort of animated by that, that performance, which I think yesterday I said something which was kind of half joking but half true that it did make me like the building better just to sort of see it actually animated and occupied because mm -hmm. the other times I've been there, it's been um, less so. Yeah. But I think also I tend to come here on weekends or when school's not in session too. So. Yeah, that is an interesting thing about campus architecture in general, is mm -hmm. that actually your um, experience of the architecture will change vastly depending on if school is in session, yeah, if oh, there's a football game or not, yeah. if there, you know, there are a lot of other circumstances. And right now when we are here this weekend, um, school's not in session, so right. there aren't that many students around. Um, but maybe you could mention just what the what happened in the performance yesterday at the oh. building that did seem to engage that courtyard. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting describing it to all these people who know it. We need some audience laughter here. Um, so, <laughs> but um, I, 
you know, basically it was, I think, this uh, a result of a collaborative course between dance and architecture, between um, uh, two professors, one in dance and one in architecture, and kind of the intersection between pedestrian movement in a space and dance, and kind of trying to kind of conflate those two things together. And um, so, um, and it took place in this kind of central space of the Oculus, so there it was a, a little bit of a kind of like theater in the round that was a result of occupying the perimeter of that space uh, with the sky kind of coming in from above. And it was actually, I think, beautifully, you know, sort of staged in a site-specific way. And I, it also, I think, pointed to the potential successes of that of um, that building. And, you know, and it, I think it also points to just sort of the possibilities of campus architecture in general, how in some ways, and um, I know this just from my own work on campus architecture, that it's actually often the exterior spaces or making spaces on the exterior that where, you know, you actually can create sort of animate spatial experiences. Yeah, and the McMurdy is like clearly trying to do that because it's taking the kind of courtyard typology, which might typically be closed off, and Mm -hmm. using this kind of vortex of circulation to open it up, as you mentioned, with a lot of kind of sectional moves. And I'm curious, you've spoken a lot in your work about working on these um, Japanese campuses where things do tend to be also very inwardly focused, Mm -hmm. and your, uh, your projects tend to really try to change that in some way. So can you talk a little bit about that ambition and also how you introduce that idea uh, in your projects, the importance of creating openness on these campuses? Um, I mean, I think with the projects that we've done in Japan and Japanese campuses, I think are very different than American campuses, but Japanese campuses tend to be much more technocratic. Academic buildings are really much more just about housing classrooms, double loaded corridors and, um, and even the notion of the campus in Japanese life is different because most students, most campuses are commuter campuses. We recently finished a, dormito- a student dormitory in Japan, and that's a very unusual typology. Usually, ty- usually dormitories are done for companies as uh, as uh, employees get shuttled from city to city. So um, the notion of kind of working with um, both spatially efficient and economically efficient type of a building type, which does not necessarily allow for a section, which I think the idea of an animate section is basically a luxury or trying to convince someone to like take up space and, you know, by opening things up is yeah. a luxury. Um, is then the really the place where one is often able to kind of create a dynamic spatial condition is in the exterior or how uh, how a building object shapes itself around exterior space in order to create some type of community. And I think that that's at the McBurdy building, that's to me the most successful parts of the building are its exterior spaces. Yeah. And it, it does seem to be, um, those spaces are this kind of, um, uh, you know, formed by this collision of the formalization of movement and the, the formalization of program. One of 
of the things that I th- we really respect about your work is this programmatically driven um, exploration that ends up getting expressed in very specific material and tectonic ways. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, you had one project where there's a programmatic requirement of introducing kind of privacy mm-hmm. uh, between adjacent spaces. So the windows are shifted in a very interesting pattern to avoid students looking at each other mm-hmm. uh, to build up um, to build up privacy. So I was curious if you could speak a little bit about the way your practice weaves together um, these kind of programmatic concerns, which are more behavioral and time-based, and these very um, ingenious material solutions. I think that like the... I mean, one thing that we found, and I, I'd be curious because, you know, we haven't really worked in the same way in American camp. We're more familiar, we've taught in American campuses, but yeah. like worked on Japanese campuses, it's sort of weird. But um, with the, in terms of like, the Japanese, when you speak to Japanese administrators at university, like in Japan, I'll just maybe just, we'll go back a little bit too far, but, you know, there's this like super intense and high pressured educational experience, which is about getting into a university. And then once you're getting, you get into university, it's sort of just accepted that for four years, you just kind of goof off. And then you enter into the corporate world and you have this other intense experience of just sort of meeting deadlines. So the university time is this period of where you can actually like let your hair down and be free. So students are, so um, university people are really um, concerned about the bad behavior of students during this period of time. So that's where there's the idea of the the student student behavior as and trying to kind of mitigate the worst type of student behavior becomes actually a programmatic concern. Yeah. And I don't know if that happens, you know, in universities here. Like, you know, we we did one project where um, you know, there's like a little lip on a auditorium, for instance, and everyone was freaking out about the possibility of students skateboarding off it and falling down. There actually, this dormitory building has a screen, and recently I just heard that a kid left his keys in the his fourth floor room and then so he scaled up the building because it's made of these louvers. And so the way that students occupy architecture in Japan is really interesting because they just like, anyways, so, so that does become a programmatic concern in terms of thinking about like adjacencies, uh, material durability, um, dealing with vision. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just in the same way that say something like the McMurdy building is I guess in some ways about uh, creating some kind of communal interdisciplinary way of thinking about the arts through adjacencies. So it's a kind of disciplinary way of designing. Um, our experiences have been as much about um, dealing with uh, student issues rather than, mm-hmm. say, disciplinary issues. I'm also curious about the cities. So when you're working on um, Japanese campus, it's in Tokyo or near mm-hmm. Tokyo, which is an incredible example of uh, urbanism. Uh, you live and work uh, at Studio Sumo in New York, mm-hmm. um, and then you teach in New Haven at mm-hmm. Yale's campus. And so um, in your life, in your, in your daily interactions, you're having these really rich, I think, experiences of architectural environments. How do you think those different Tokyo, New York, New Haven, um, how do you think those have influenced your work? Um, I think that, um, I mean, it's 
New York probably is more just uh, a kind of separate experience and where it's just the sort of day to day of getting on the subway and going to work. And then but the campus experience, I think, has has been very interesting in terms of like um, and also both my parents were professors. So I grew up on University of California campuses. And so for me, it was always uh, a very familiar place. And um, so just seeing the difference in in both a West Coast campus now, you know, being on this like strange East Coast campus, this Yale, and then and then the Japanese campuses, which are some way in some ways like non campuses or they are campuses, but they don't necessarily try to foster campus life in the same way as here. That it's it has been, I think, very helpful for um, uh, us to, you know, kind of bring lessons learned in each places back to um, back to the other. I think, I mean, obviously, since we're not building buildings at Yale, um, th- there's not that cross current. But uh, you know, just to think about, okay, well, how can architecture, in the sort of most simple way, with the limitations that we have. Mm-hmm. Be a f- be something that you know even in a moment creates some kind of moment of campus life in places or where and, and how do you architecturally accomplish that on a place where that's just not part of the tradition? So, and th- and that to me was really interesting because you talk a lot about limits and opportunities. And one thing that really resonated with me in a lecture about your campus work in Japan is that you mentioned a lot of these projects have started maybe uh, as very different programs than they end up Mm. being and in very different situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've mentioned that there is maybe an expectation for the architect to serve more of the role of conceptualizing the program from the beginning. Can you talk about uh, working within that context and the agency of the architect has in that and what lessons you've learned from that? Yeah, I mean, for, uh, I think that the in um at least with our experience that we've never been given a program before we've and you know we've done uh i guess f- uh five buildings in Japan and they've ranged from say like maybe 7000 square feet to 70000 square feet um and so it's something that just kind of has been developed and there is this idea that the architect will be part of the programming process as well and um, I had worked on campuses in for other offices, and it was very, very different. They're almost, you know, kind of university standards. There's um, material standards. There was just a lot more kind of control. And I think, you know, the McMurdy building and, and the other building, I, you know, is very obviously something that is trying to uh, work and subvert those standards, right? And so I think um, to me that's, and you know, some incredible creativity comes out through uh, subversion, as it does through just kind of having an open slate. But that the idea of architect as expert, I think, or the expertise of the architect, I yeah. think, is something that is relied on in uh, at least in Japan in very different. I think to a much, you know, it's a much greater breadth what architects do mm-hmm. in terms, and then, and then things like construction companies come in as well, and then they offer their own expertise, and even that's a very different process of how things get built too. So, you know, in Japan, the campus that we had done most of our work on is now 55 years old, 
and the it's basically every building has been done by one construction company in the last 55 years. Um, this company called Obayashi that's been around for 150 years. It was started by this guy who was a kimono maker who like fixed temples in his spare time in Kyoto. And is now you know one of the biggest companies in Japan, not just construction companies, but one of the biggest companies. And so, there's this way that I think uh, almost institutional partnerships or even like corporate partnerships happen between big companies and um, uh, institutions in Japan. That's probably quite different from here. Yeah. 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 And do you think any of that's translatable, or is it just too culturally specific? of that way of working. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I think, you know, it's, uh, I do think it's translatable. Um, I, it's, I, you know, just also the way that, for instance, well, you just see in architectural practice in general, I don't have to tell people in this room this, just how much um, collaboration there is now, say, between, you know, design architects, architects, all the different kind of collaborators, or even different ways of thinking about, um, you know, well, one thing that I don't think yet has translated at the same scale, this country uh, is a sort of like the idea of design build at a, at a bigger scale, yeah. which is essentially what happens in Japan. You know, whether it's like a, a small foreign firm like us or like a, a I don't know, like a Toyoito or Sejima um, firm, every you, drawings are done and then the construction company does redraws all the drawings themselves. So... Um, the idea of the CD set that you pass on to the contractor for bidding doesn't really exist there. So. Towards the end of our conversation, we open the discussion to the audience for questions. Our first question came from an audience member who asked Sunil to talk about the Yale School of Architecture's Rudolph Hall, where he currently teaches, and how that building may have shaped our understanding and perception of campus architecture. So, you know, you're in the building okay. more, more than we are these days. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, there's, I mean, I think it operates on a number of levels. One, in ter- I and maybe this is going to sound too much like a pitch, but in terms of, to say, the culture of the school, you know, of course, you guys are all familiar with the building, but it has this incredible section. So, and I think about that section a lot. Uh, in in terms of how it never allows us to hide from each other. So we just cannot, we can't avoid, at least as faculty, we can't avoid each other. And so it definitely then creates this environment where uh, it does create a real collegiality in the end once you, or, you know, moments of friction, which then hopefully leads to better collegiality. Um, and then also the student, um, professor, and these guys can talk to that too, I think it creates a lot more, there's just not distance. Um, You know, the dean's office, it doesn't have a door and it doesn't have a ceiling. So everything can, usually if like Deborah or Phil, the other associate dean have something, we go to come to like my office because I have a ceiling. And that, you know, that we, that other people can't hear. So the openness is really kind of incredible. And then I think also just in terms of the results, 
you see like students drawing sections. I don't know if Emily, if you think that too, but like, I just find how like it does really begin to influence like the sort of design yeah. process as well. Yeah. I think it, it's interesting because I think it overlays something you were talking about program where there's one way to look at it in terms of just conceptualizing these kind of bureaucratic boxes, which mm -hmm. kind of organize uh, space adjacencies and make way for the studios, but then through its sectional moves and also little idiosyncrasies like stairs that tie together only a couple right. of levels. I think it's able to approach program from top down and bottom up yeah. in a really interesting way. So the the experience of the building and its diagram are not the same thing. And right. that's what I really appreciate about the experience right. in that place. Yeah, it was interesting that when you, you mentioned the, re the renovation, it happened in 2000 and uh, either 2008 or 2009. And um, somebody actually, uh, one of the Joya, one of the uh, who's a student who presented here. Um, she, we were out to lunch and yesterday, and she said, "I've really been wanting to ask you this, but like in 2010, did Bob, the former dean Robert Stern, um, Robert A. M. Stern, did he uh, like try to get rid of 75 percent of the, the first year classes? Is like kind of urban legend or something about the school, but what?" That was a that was like a kind of um, exaggeration of when we would do port, we do portfolio reviews in the second year and we found that that this particular class was really had issues in terms of thinking about space materiality and it was just kind of coming through in the drawings and that was the class that was in a different building during their first year. And it was, they occupied this new, actually really nice, you know, it's a nice building, this Karen Timberlake building for the sculpture department, but which is basically has no section to it. And um, yeah, so it, it, it made me think about that in terms of uh, the effect that the building just has on, um, on the students. Mm -hmm. Another thing I was thinking about the way that sh the building shapes the, maybe the student culture and the student yeah. life, um, is the use of the exterior spaces. Mm -hmm. So when we were at the McMurdy building, there were these amazing, beautiful terraces that were huge and kind of cascading and open staircases. Um, and you start to think that that's because the California weather and you can spend so much time outside. Um, but even for Connecticut weather, New England weather, um, I think the use of the terraced uh, levels on top of the Rudolph building are also pretty incredible. And uh, the students just bundle up and still continue to use those spaces um, throughout the winter usually. And I think that um, as a kind of social space of the school mm -hmm. operates um, a little bit in the same way that the fourth floor review spaces operate. So a review becomes a kind of big production that you might stand on the fifth floor and look down and watch mm -hmm. the review. Um, and in some ways, the social life is sort of mirrored in that um, when they have um, the six on seven celebrations on Friday evenings and um, just kind of opportunity um, to be overlooking but be part of the scene. Yeah. Although it's a little it's a little inverted from the McMurdy where like the kind of spaces where you'd expect to hang out are a little panoptic. <laughs> like whereas like with Yale, like that center space, like it's good for the reviews, but I wouldn't really hang out there. I would <laughs> retreat to the roof or mm -hmm. some other kind of corner away from view. The following question came from an audience member curious about aesthetic regulations, characteristic of university campuses, ranging from specific material palettes to the way buildings are organized on the site, and how architects reconcile their own stylistic intentions with those ingrained in a university setting. Maybe I'll answer it with an anecdote, if that's okay. 
Okay. Um, so uh, I was with a colleague of mine, um, you know, sometimes if, uh, usually I try to walk from the train station to the Rudolph building in New Haven, but the other day I was late with this friend, colleague, and so we took a cab, and you know, this was like this kind of old, it must have been in his mid-70s, former hippie, his, like the, the front seat next to him in his cab was just like filled with like magazines and it was like the place the the car was a mess but he um he found out we're architects and he said oh, i've got a question to ask you and he said like um what do you think of that new dormitory these we have two new dormitories designed by um robert am stern our former dean and um you know very historicist and everything and and we said, I know. I said, I don't know. What do you think? Because, um, and he said, I just don't understand why they spent millions of dollars on those fake chimneys. And he said, just seems like a waste of money. And they said, what's wrong with Cortan steel? And it was really, it was like really interesting. And he said, like, look at that building. And he was pointing like Kevin Roach's Knights of Columbus building. He said, that's beautiful. You know, look at that Cortan steel. And so. Um, it it was you know it it was this kind of like well maybe the public maybe we don't know what the public likes i mean that's one question is our assumptions and um uh and maybe it's more almost like the kind of like institutional desires but um but at the same time that's i don't want to totally skirt your question but i think it also then goes back to which i think i i think our wonderful design challenges is like how do you take campus campus standards and um, work with them in a creative way and it's something that's like a, maybe a pedagogical question too is like how do we ask our students you know what kind of limitations even do we give our students um, to uh, think about uh, invention within constraints um, so, I don't know if that's an answer, but yeah. Okay. It's interesting to note that it's usually the architecture building on campus, which uh, somehow gets out of the um, requirements <laughs> and right. rules, and that it's and architects then typically find it one of the more interesting buildings on campus, yeah. often because it doesn't follow those rules, and somehow, um, and all the campuses I've been been at, the architecture building is the signature piece, and mm -hmm. it makes a good argument um, to the university um, that we can do that. Or cab drivers, like the <laughs> no. But I remember, you know, going to thesis reviews at Princeton many years ago, and and uh, the cab driver just saying, asking me, why is the um, architecture building always like the ugliest building on campus? So, so you get that too. Finally, our last question came from an audience member who asked Sunil about his take on the idea that campuses are often seen as spaces of elitism, and if acknowledging this perception in academic architecture can help campuses become more open and inclusive to a broad range of users. Yeah, I mean, I think that like as, um, yeah, I went to, so the, my own educational experience were on two very different campuses. So my undergraduate degree is at UC Santa Cruz, you know, which is just you know, to kind of like non-campus. Um, it's, it's a camp, yes. And then my graduate was at Columbia, which, you know, is a wall, basically a fortress. And um, so, um, but my like experience working 
in architecture, other than working for other architects, um, has been on these kind of like Japanese campuses, where in some ways I think the the fortress is at the architectural scale as much as it is at the campus scale. And um, so how to, so I think, and the, the campuses themselves are actually quite fluid. And also, I think within Japan or within the cult, within Japan, the um, what's been interesting, like about Japanese campuses or Japanese, even Japan as a society in general, is it's now finally sort of um, facing not fa- the challenges of diversity. And uh, partly because you have this declining population and the, the place where that diversity often enters the country is at the university level. So most universities are in crisis mode because there are just not enough students for the seats. So they are basically trying as much as they like the university that we work with has something like 75 um, sister universities around the world that brings in people from whether Asia or Eastern Europe or the United States. So um, the div- what's, what is interesting about ca- uh, campuses in Japan is they are the most diverse environments in the, almost in the country. And also because of just like, the, you, you don't have as much economic inequity in Japan as you do in this country at all. So that's been, I think, for us working at the architectural scale, then there are opportunities for things to uh, open up more at that scale. Um, but, so I'm, I may be skirting your question a little bit, but like, yeah, with, within sort of campuses like Yale, you know, um, and even like a campus at Yale, I think when you're when you're within the architecture school, you're not really quite within the campus. I don't know if you're familiar with its location at the the rest of the um, the campus, but it's very much at a corner. And then if you're if you're and very kind of on two city streets, so it's it's very it's not very isolated. And it took me I think two or three years teaching there to actually go into the actual campus. So my experience teaching there hasn't been. Um, and then the other campuses that I worked on when I was working, I was working for this architect, Antoine Pradoc, when I got out of school. And so that was a building here. And then the other build that I worked on was actually at UC Santa Cruz, the music school there. Um, but uh, there, and there I think at Santa Cruz, the issue was less about um, kind of social um, inequity, but more kind of environmental imposition. Like it was a time where just the thought of building was was an act of violence on that, especially on this particular site. So um, that was a kind of ethical, and as you know, someone who both grew up there and went to school there, that was. And it being like the first thing I did out of school was sort of like this moral dilemma of like actually working on something or on a um, on a site that I like grew up with. So. Sunil Bald, thank you so much for taking the time to bring us to the McMurdy Building and for joining us in this wonderful conversation. And thank you to ACSA for facilitating an incredible conference and allowing us to record our first ever live episode of Site Visit. 
To see pictures of the McMurdy building and other things we've discussed on this episode, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us. Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Schulman.